Hello, welcome to In Conversation With, a podcast from The Lancet. I'm Gavin Cleaver. The Global Burden of Disease is a huge effort to collate the world's epidemiological data into one place. GBD, as we call it, contains information from 1990 to the present for every country on Earth, covering everything from risk factors to mortality. It also aims to look into the future, using models to predict how trends may emerge. Later on this podcast, I turn to our new GBD paper on forecasting worldwide population trends and think about what these shifts mean for the planet as a whole. For that, I speak with one of the paper authors, Professor Steen Emil Volset from the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation, and we talk about ageing populations and policy solutions. First, though, I spoke with Dr Kathleen O'Reilly of the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine to get an idea of how modelling works. How do you build a model? How do you predict the future? And how do you account for chaos? So I'm joined today by Dr Kathleen O'Reilly, who is an assistant professor at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. And there she specialises in the use of mathematical and statistical models to inform things like infectious disease control and eradication. So Dr O'Reilly, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for inviting me. So let's start with the real basics then. So like you decide to kind of make a new model to predict some aspect of the future, say, obviously, in your case, infectious disease control or eradication. Where do you start? Yeah, I guess this, this sort of comes from thinking about what the problem is. And obviously, we're interested in um, public health and infectious disease control. So as a biologist, I always come at it from asking, well, what's the biological question that I want to um, first of all, ask and ideally answer using a model. Um, from that, it, it's all about developing a framework, but but that framework might just be as simple as what, what is a particular question that I want to ask and what information do I need to try and answer that question. So how do you, I guess, decide which kind of variables and information to use and exclude generally when you're making a model? What's the decision process? There's there's a number of things that you want to be thinking about. So um, once you've got your framework, you might have some kind of a, um, a mechanism behind the process. So thinking quite simply about um, the incidence of an infectious disease, you, you might be thinking, well, first question, is this a vaccine preventable disease? Are individuals vaccinated in the population? So, you know, one of the key things that we would want to know is... Um, what kind of data do we have? So is it incidence of disease, incidence of infection, and consequently, what um, level of immunity might exist in the population? And this might relate to immunity from the infectious disease or alternatively immunity from um, something such as vaccination. So so it's, it's all of these kind of components, but... Of course, one of the issues with this, especially when you think about it from a biological perspective, there's many different variables that are potentially going to impact on the thing that you care about. So then it's about trying to sort of think big, okay, what are all of these different variables? And then start to think small, which of these variables are the ones that matter? And you might know that answer ahead of time, but alternatively, you might want to test this and you might go about doing this using a model. Yeah, so that leads me on to my next question. Uh, how how do you kind of assess the validity of a model once you have one? It, it, it's sort of, it, it's part of um, this kind of thinking process is 
um, thinking in relation to sort of research in general as part of the sort of research cycle, so to speak. So like you've got an idea, you start to think about it a little bit more, you might discover, you gather and analyse your data, you sort of have some kind of um, sort of end of chapter. So you might be sort of writing about your initial results and then you'll be like sharing and um, providing some impact of your research. But but thinking about this as a series of little cycles, that there's going to be an iterative process. And, and that would be sort of, it would include things such as validation. So there would be some internal validation um, in relation to um, it's just really simple tests, perhaps initially. So if you if you had a model and you had some process for vaccination and you removed um, vaccination from the model, you might expect to see an increase in cases. So you know you you would perhaps test that in your model and do some sort of sense checking initially. And and I think you know any any modeler doesn't work in sort of silo by themselves they always work in collaboration with experts in that particular infectious disease for example so there would be lots of collaboration with other experts to establish first of all whether things make sense and if things don't make sense you know is there a problem of some sort or is it a counterintuitive finding for example um it, it would be sort of a relatively sort of circular process until you become confident and you've been able to illustrate it through validation and then you're starting to use the results from a particular type of model. It seems to me anyway a lot of what models are used to predict seems quite kind of inherently chaotic like for example uh, inputting human behaviour. It is the kind of a way of accounting for this kind of um, chaos I guess for want of a better word. It kind of it, it does depend that there are um, particular sort of properties um, I, I guess I guess the first thing to emphasize is that there, there are different types of models so um, for largely statistical models um, there, there might not be chaotic properties but if you're thinking about sort of mathematical models of infectious diseases where you've got um, importantly um, um, a dynamic property of previous infections affecting the incidence of future infections um, chaos is is part of that process so one of the the interesting parts well one, one of the things that i think of when i'm trying to explain sort of chaotic theory um, is is the application of infectious diseases to seasonality so so there what you have in many settings is a very moderate change in, for example, temperature or humidity of a pathogen, which can result in quite large changes um, in the incidence of infectious diseases. And and there the the sort of the the, the properties of that model are, are reasonably well understood, but it can result in um, quite unusual behaviour. So, for example, the work that um, Brian Grenfell um, has led over the last sort of 20, 30 years has looked at the seasonality and the cycles of measles epidemics, especially in unvaccinated populations. And um, there, the, the sort of the nonlinear properties of 
um, seasonality, but also the effect of the proportion susceptible in the population is, is very striking, actually. And it, it's sort of one of the good examples of sort of chaotic properties of infectious diseases. So I guess a very general question, and um, you know, you might be quite biased as someone who works in modelling anyway, but what makes modelling so useful? How, how generally important is it when we, we talk about um, scientifically thinking about the future? So I was really struck by mathematical modelling during my undergraduate degree. So at this time, it was when um, Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease had emerged in the UK. And, you know, at the time, sort of the turn, well, you know, the early 2000s, um, there was only a small handful of cases. Um, but because of the modelling that had been done by several groups, largely in the UK, and, you know, an increased understanding of what the cause was, so the BSE epidemic in, in cattle in the UK, what was becoming quite apparent was that the the cases that you saw at that moment in time were sort of a function of what had happened for example sort of i think it was about between five and ten years ago and the consequence of that was that the expectation was that there would be many more cases to come and and you know that's one of the reasons why a lot of cattle in the UK were destroyed because of the BSE epidemic because of the um, the the impact on on both cattle and and the potential impact in humans and for me that was a real sort of eye opener of what additional observations modelling can use um, in addition to what you can see you know in terms of current cases being reported. Um, and you can see that this kind of effect again and again, but it's it's the sort of the link between what you see now and what you can potentially see in the future by having a model of the underlying process as well as just what you're seeing now. Um, obviously, another example of this, and it's obviously quite pertinent at the moment, is the the COVID cases that are reported in one week have an impact several weeks later because of um, the, you know, the timing that individuals um, have in terms of their infectiousness, the subsequent um, acquisition of infection of other individuals and the timing at which they're likely to, for example, report to healthcare services or hospitals. Yeah, so um, how has modelling evolved over the last few years in the field? Have there been any noticeable jumps forward, I guess? Well, interestingly enough, um, myself and other people at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine and at Imperial College, um, we put together a sort of a special edition actually on, well, in, a, in another journal on um, how methods in modelling um, have changed. And I think we, we started to think about this um, in quite a lot of detail and we were sort of thinking, well, prior to the 2000s, it was really sort of quite a, a theoretical approach but the use of models and the increasing use of models by infectious disease epidemiologists and also ecologists meant that the the variety of models out there has really increased um what has changed more recently so from sort of 2010 or so onwards has been the 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 rapid change in how we use data so I think prior to this time, um, we modellers were always complaining that we didn't have the right data to put together an informative model. Now, 
it's almost like we've got so much data we, we don't always know what to do with it and I think this is where um, fields such as data science statistics increased collaboration with um, the people who are collecting the data um, becomes really important so that we understand the inherent biases in how different data sets are collected and how we should as modelers use that data inside of our models. Um, I think one of the other things that has happened has been that in a, in a very good way there are actually many different um, groups which have the expertise in infectious disease modelling. So uh, COVID being a very good example, actually, there are multiple groups looking at pretty similar questions using a multitude of different models, sometimes getting the same results, and well, hopefully most of the time getting the same results, but sometimes getting different results. And, and actually that needs that as a field in itself in terms of multi-model comparison, how we communicate to stakeholders, that's also changed quite a lot and um, it, it's quite an interesting area because you know you you start to think okay so how are we communicating the results of our models to to people that care about the results um, and, and that that has also really changed over the past couple of years. Well it's been a really fascinating chat uh, Dr O'Reilly thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you. After speaking with Kathleen we wanted to dive into the GBD forecast model itself uh, so, Professor Stein Emil Volset, thank you so much for joining me today to talk about the Global Burden of Disease uh, Population Forecasting paper. Why don't we start by you telling us just a little bit about your background and where you work? Yeah, I'm uh, I'm an MD and I have uh, degrees in biostatistics uh, and public health from UCLA, and I spent most of my career in Norway at the universities in, at the at University of Bergen in Norway and Norwegian Institute of Public Health. But I moved to, and then I moved to Seattle uh, a couple of years ago, and I'm now a professor of health metrics uh, uh, at the University of Washington, and I, I work at, uh, at the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation, uh, IHME. That's great. So we're talking today about your work with the global burden of disease. Now, the global burden of disease, of course, encompasses all of this data work from around the world, looking at disease burden, any kind of health stats from around the world. It's a really kind of comprehensive system. So how important is GBD uh, becoming for public health? In my mind, uh, GBD has become a vital resource to global public health. It's uh, now the reference for data on uh, incidence, prevalence, mortality, disability-adjusted life years, the DALI, uh, for more than 350 diseases and injuries uh, covering all countries in the world. Uh, the GBD now has subnational disease burden estimates for many countries, uh, such as uh, China, India, the US, Mexico, Brazil, Pakistan, Indonesia, Nigeria, uh, Ethiopia, uh, the UK, uh, Norway, and, 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 and uh, quite a few other countries. GBD also uh, includes attributable disease burden due to around 70 risk factors, including smoking, alcohol use, air pollution, access to clean water and sanitation and, and many, many more. Uh, I think also now with the COVID-19 crisis, the GBD infrastructure 
that has been built up over the past decade has proven critical to for IHME to, to, to rapidly rapidly be able to provide uh, COVID-19 forecasts. Uh, these forecasts now cover most countries in the world and then they are on our website. Uh, we will also expand our detailed forecasts of GBD disease burden uh, that uh, I hope will make GBD even more useful for policymakers. So looking particularly at your paper, which is about um, population forecasting over the next few decades, you predict some quite fundamental shifts in the makeup of populations worldwide. What are some of the key messages that policymakers should be listening to from this forecast? Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, to just to sum up the, 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 the overarching message is that um, our forecast uh, predicts that the global population will uh, grow over the next 40 to 50 years by 2 billion uh, people, but then will decline in the last third of this century uh, by a million down to 8.8 .8 billion in uh, 2100. Uh, then I would like to remark that our predictions are not the future cast in stone. They have wide uncertainty and difference between uh, scenarios. So there is ample room to influence the future by policy choices today and in the years ahead. And, and uh, as, as we know, situation uh, might change rapidly, as we have seen with the, with the, with the, with the pandemic. Uh, second, I think uh, policymakers, based on this, they should prepare for a situation where majority of countries will see their populations decline, with uh, fewer children, fewer adults in the workforce to support a growing number of older people. And the exception to this is uh, is Africa and, uh, and, and some parts of the Middle East uh, because in, in the presence of this global population decline uh, towards the end of the century the population of sub-Saharan Africa will, will increase and continue to increase through the century from 1 billion today to, to 3 billion according to our, our forecasts. And also in the paper, we predict that these changes in age structures will affect countries' economies as measured with total GDP. And we provide a ranking table of, of large countries' economies through the century. So as well as this quite sizable growth, you talk in the paper about uh, the, the inverted population pyramid, the fact that according to your model, the population will, uh, the global population will age significantly on, on average uh, over the next few decades. What are the problems here, and uh, how how can we address this? Of course, this this the the inversion of the population pyramid, meaning that we will have fewer young people and more old people, will pose challenges to to many countries, uh, because this is what they will be seeing. But in other places, like uh, most countries in, in, in sub-Saharan Africa, they will see 
increases in their workforce uh, population potentially coupled with lack of employment opportunities. So uh, one could think that the liberal immigration policies could help distribute the global workforce more evenly. So I, it's, it's certainly a good idea for the world and for countries to invest more and better education, especially in countries with, with, with growing populations or the countries that have populations that will continue to grow. We could imagine and, and hope for policies that will make it more attractive for families and women to have and raise children. And that would also, that type of policy, if uh, successful, would also uh, counter the inversion of the population pyramid. So this feels like quite a rapid shift um, in, in world population and in the dynamics, as you speak about, in different global areas as well. Why are these yeah. shifts happening so rapidly? The root reason of that, actually, is that what, you, you know, to, to forecast population size and age structure by country like we do, we, we need to forecast first mortality, for fertility and migration. And of the three, these three inputs to the population forecast, fertility is the, is the major driver. And these changes, they are happening, happening rapidly because fertility is happening, is changing uh, rapidly. So we see all over the world that uh, women are having fewer children and the drop in fertility is, is actually has been in, in many places been quite rapid uh, down to what we call sub-fertility levels, which is a total fertility rate below 2.1 children per woman. No interview is complete these days without a question about COVID-19. So uh, what implications does COVID-19 have for your model? Even if the, the COVID pandemic is quite severe, but if it's, it will be limited to a couple of years at this point in time and, and, and death number, although very large at the moment, it is unlikely to, to affect say, our long-term population uh, forecasts. Because, uh, like I said earlier, actually, it, it's, it's m deaths and mortality is not the major driver uh, uh, of, of population forecasts, uh, even in, in the presence of a pandemic like uh, the COVID one we have now. If uh, the pandemic in some way and would affect fertility in, in, in one direction or another, it could affect population numbers, but I doubt that it, this will happen. And at the moment, we have uh, we have uh, we have no reason to believe so. And so we just would have to wait a couple of years to see if 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 that would be the case at all. That's very interesting. So, uh, Professor Volset, thank you so much for talking with me today. Well, it, it was a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks so much to both my interviewees today, and thanks to you for listening. 